welcome back to the Groundless Ground podcast, the leading edge of mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Remember, you can now subscribe to and download the Groundless Ground on your favorite podcast app or listen on YouTube, Spotify, and TuneIn. This episode is an educational and fun dialogue with Dr. Ken Wilgus a licensed psychologist who specializes in adolescent and family therapy. Ken has authored Feeding the Mouth That Bites You, a practical guide for parents of adolescents targeted at helping them facilitate their teenagers' autonomy, responsibility, self-efficacy, and independence. We touch on many tough subjects in this conversation, behavior issues, academic performance, helicopter parenting, failure to launch, device culture, teen sexuality, faith and morality, substance and porn use. Dr. Wilkes is a sought-after speaker and regularly teaches on a wide range of topics relating to parenting, marriage, family, and faith. He conducts training workshops for educators and has been a consultant with several area school districts. He's also the co-founder of Ringleaders, a men's ministry focused on strengthening the role of husbands in Christian marriage. I think you're really going to enjoy this dialogue, especially those of you who are psychotherapists that work with adolescents. It's really full of great information you can use with your patients. Ken, it is so wonderful to have you on the Groundless Ground podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. Great to be here. This book, Feeding the Mouth That Bites You, is everything I've ever wanted down in writing for my patients (laughs) who have adolescents. I don't know what moved you to do this, but of course, that's my first question. Well, that's a great question. This was a training program for about 20 years, and people would say, well, you should write a book. And my answer was always, well, there's a lot of good books about parenting adolescents. But then over the years, I actually, that answer got more true than ever, that there's a lot of good books about parenting adolescents, so many that they get into specialized things, things that are kind of esoteric. And I felt like what was missing was a single map guide that in spite of all the other things that may be going on, attention deficit disorder, family struggles, whatever, this is the line you must continue to walk just to get from here to there. So it was really more about uh, clarifying priorities in what is an increasing information forest. But I have to tell you, as somebody who's worked a lot with adolescents, I did almost my entire 3,000 clinical hours to get licensed years ago with adolescents. Parenting adolescents has changed in 20 years, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. For the worse. Well, it really has. There's a theme that's growing over these last 20 years that I think all of us that work with adolescents share the same concern that this pattern of over-hovering and really losing track of what, what are you trying to accomplish here is not getting better. It's getting worse. So yeah, I, I think the timing of it was definitely a hope that the book would help to join with a few other books and roll back that tide, I think. One of the most pertinent and brilliant lines in your book comes way at the beginning. It might even be in the introduction. You wrote, currently, we live in a culture that has no universally accepted means of transitioning children into adulthood. The Groundless Ground listeners are fairly sophisticated. They're philosophically as well as psychologically minded. Good. And so I'd like to give you a chance to riff a little bit on what you think some kind of transitioning ritual would look like in a culture that is so devoid of such rituals. 
Number one, we run the risk of having a ritual that does not have as much meaning or may have no meaning. For example, I've attended several bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvah that used to, in Jewish culture, really be the transition point from a child to a son or daughter of the covenant where you obey God instead of just directly your parents. And as you can guess, in the West, it's a great thing for teenagers, but they don't go home any different than they were before. Ritual alone isn't, has to have meaning behind it. And what we have lost track of is that adolescence was essentially invented after the Industrial Revolution, where a simple agrarian culture, by about 13 or 14, you're kind of ready to get going. Young adults were married at 13 and 14. There's this great little argument in the play Romeo and Juliet from the Middle Ages, where the prince is arguing that Juliet is definitely ready to be married because uh, many women by the ripe old age of 13 have already had their first child. And he's saying she should wait another year. The term adolescence was never used until about 1941. That trend is part of how we handle our adolescence. It was probably after World War II that we did the final deed of snapping adolescence onto the end of childhood rather than where it's supposed to be, which is at the beginning of adulthood. So a transition would look like what it used to look like, certainly a ritual that would carry with it the real responsibilities and freedoms of a full-fledged uh, adult member, still young and innocent and uh, ignorant, needing a lot of help, but still a full-fledged young adult member of our culture. This may be because I was an adolescent a long time ago. When I was an adolescent back in the 70s, our transition into adulthood was getting a job. Yes. I did not grow up in a lower economic neighborhood. Right. We all were required to get a job and start making money. But somehow that felt adult. I don't know about where you live, but here in Silicon Valley, when I do an intake with an adolescent or even with an adult who's struggling with their adolescence, when I ask, well, does your child have a job or do you have a job? The answer is usually 100% of the time, no. Right, I can't. Here, it's, I don't have any time. It seems like the ritual we have for quote-unquote growing up these days is making sure you do everything to get into the college of your choice. Absolutely. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. You know, what you get to is the balance of how much of a teenager's life is consumption and what is their output? What are they actually contributing? And parents uh, rarely think about that this teenager is certainly at an age ready to make real contributions. And by the way, contribution does not count even, this may bother some people, but even your little local sports team, that's a good thing, but that's uh, organized for the teenagers to have their sport and so forth. I'm talking about contribution like at a shelter or where uh, people are in real need in the community and join hands with those needs. Teenagers are ready to participate in that and we give them no preparation for that. We almost teach them to be entitled and expect that everything that goes on, even sometimes this little freedom thing you're giving me, is this part of some sort of training thing you're doing for me? Like a big amusement park ride. Fine, I'll do the quote, learn responsibility class. I love that. Everything is an internship. Would you share a little bit about what planned emancipation is? Yeah, that actually was advised to me at one point that that's a better title for the book. Feeding the Mouth That Bites You is the title that parents always tip their head back and laugh and say, oh, that's so true. 
planned emancipation is really the essence of what are you telling me to do in the book. And planned emancipation is essentially, since a teenager's main need is individuation, that is the need to know how will I know that I have arrived fully as an adult and how do I know I'm getting there? Planned emancipation is the parental response by getting ahead of that and recognizing there's a start and a finish point to parenting and coming through a logical series of steps to release this teenager to their own freedom. You need to approach your discipline of them with the initial promise, starting at about the age of 13, that I am working my way out of a job. And at this point, which is virtually always right after high school, you will be making your own decisions. And my role will be something close to a benevolent bank where I may or may not support some of the things you do. But outside of that, you must be handling things yourself. And then it's the process of somewhere between 13 and the end of high school, orderly and being reasonable, releasing areas of freedom to a teenager. One of my favorite early starts is music. I work a fair amount with Christian parents, and there are parents that still will tell me that their 15-year-old, quote, is not allowed to listen to anything but Christian music. And the teenager looks at me, and I look at the teenager. Are you going to say anything, or am I going to say anything? Because unless you're Amish, a teenager is listening to whatever she or he wants to listen to. So one of the early freedoms, and I I don't mean privilege. Privilege says, hey, I'm going to let you do this. Freedom says, uh, at your age, uh, which is one of my favorite phrases, at your age, you need to use your own judgment about music, meaning that that's up to you what you listen to. Now, there's always responsibility that comes with freedom. So you would say that uh, if I catch your little sister listening to Kendrick Lamar, you may be in trouble for that. But uh, as long as it's in your headphones and your stuff, that's an example of the kind of freedom that you can start small with essentially freedoms they already have, ending at some point with you come back home when you think it's ready. It's no longer time for me to tell you even when to come in at night, which is very scary for parents, but that would be after high school. Planned emancipation is an orderly series of freedom steps where you can make your own decision about this thing. It's now up to you. Don't ask me about it, but I will hold you accountable for the decisions you make or the world will hold you accountable. So it's just an orderly withdrawal of control from parents controlling the teenager life to the young adult controlling her or his own life. So I can imagine some parents listening to this right now saying, well, that sounds good. (laughs) And how in the world did I do that? And the great thing about this book that you've written is you actually tell people. One of the methods that you introduce early on is you say, as control leaves, meaning as parental control leaves, communication moves in. That is such a gift in this book because we all know that adolescents become monosyllabic. (laughs) That's so true. And communication is one of the greatest difficulties parents have with their children because either they're not interested in talking to the parent or sometimes they're way over interested in talking to the parent. The parent is the only close person they really have. And in either of these cases, the communication becomes very wonky. Would you like to say a little bit about the kind of communication that you're proposing really helps to elicit freedom? This is what's so great about talking to a therapist. You totally know what I'm talking about. What you're describing, well, she doesn't talk to me. I say, how was your day? And she is fine. And I try to ask, and she's just mad, has become this norm. 
parents don't even realize that that's not a norm at all. And there are some things that you can do about it. Now, you can't guarantee that a teenager will communicate more with you because there's more variables. Some teenagers are not very communicative. Parents don't recognize that when they are asking things like, how was your school day? They often sound to their teenager like a policeman saying, what are y'all doing in there? I'm asking a few simple questions just before I burst in and take over whatever this thing you're doing. Planned emancipation, giving over freedom, does for many parents allow for the first time to really have discussion, like, for example, with music. Leaving that to them is your chance to say, can I look at your playlist and be able to comment on, ooh, do you not think this is violent? Does this not bother you? And have real discussion. And parents definitely need to know that that kind of communication is very influential. But the constant repeating the rule or little speech making, I'm a dad. I think dads are particularly worse at making speeches. I had speeches and they uh, didn't do my kid any good. Real communication is adult to adult where you can share your own perspective and actually know that your teenager is being listened to in sharing his or her perspective. Adult to adult, the child's not an adult and yet it's the parent's responsibility to give the child the feeling of what it's like to be responsible for how you comport yourself in the world. True. It's tricky because part of it that's helpful is to share something of yourself uh, instead of taking control of their friendships, which won't work by going, I just don't think she's a very good friend to you. Instead, you can say, you know, maybe it's just me. I used to always tell my kids, you know me, I'm a psychologist and I get nervous. Maybe I'm just getting too worried, but, and then I would share the thing I'm concerned about. But that's finding the right balance of sharing a little bit of what's going on inside you without confession to your child. But at the same time, also being able to listen to a young adult that sometimes really looks more adult, particularly with boys, more adult than he's emotionally capable of communicating. I also think it gives a child modeling for a kind of proprioceptive ability to read eye gaze, body posture, tone of voice. You know, when the parent is communicating to the child in a suppositional way, wow, Here's what I'm noticing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And then what happens is the child learns, this information is actually really good. Maybe I should be looking for this in other people. And there's a way of interpersonally relating that I think cuts through the monosyllabic quality. The quality of teenagers' communication is, as you know, I'm sure in Silicon Valley, it's definitely happening here in Texas, is going way down. The amount of time that teenagers are spending on screens, I have great concern for their inability to really communicate together. I have teenagers tell me uh, a conversation with her boyfriend, and she'll be quoting it, and, uh, and I'll ask, is that a text or did he say this? And they look at me like, you big idiot, D- does that make any difference? Yes, that does. The sarcastic tone you just used, there is no font for sarcasm. You know, I never have a teenager that I can think of go, hey, that's a really good point. They just look at me like, you're a big idiot. So there's a kind of decline in interpersonal communication. Not only is it good for influencing your teenager, young adults need practice with adults in how to talk in that mode, and they get precious little of it. Over the years, I have worked with patients who tell me that they regularly text their children when they're in the house. <laughs> I know. There's so much about technology that's great, like what we're doing right now. But I'm sure we could all, as therapists, get together and lament, walk up the dadgum stairs and talk to your teenager. Do not text her from downstairs. 
Because we in Silicon Valley take our devices so much for granted, there has been pushback around this. There are clubs where you have to surrender your phone. That's genius. That means the only communication that's going to happen is communication between actual people. I think a couple of years ago, there was sort of a trend among some of the adolescents I was seeing. They were not on social media. They weren't interested in social media. And we're talking 16, 17-year-olds, you know, where social media is important. That was just the point where Instagram happened. There's something about images for young people. They crave real experience. Right. Because the devices have sort of gotten in the way of that. Being able to upload something that's actually happening that everybody else can see right. makes them feel like they have a tribe, like they're having tribal experience, but they're not. That's well put. I think that's right. One of the hard things about publishing a book is that as soon as it comes out, you look at the part that needs updating already. I have a chapter on social media and video games and technology. There's several things in there that now that are uh, still accurate, but they're a little out of date because the challenges of managing technology has, is just constantly changing. So I have to say I have a somewhat nuanced view of video gaming. It depends what game you're playing and the context in which you're playing it. Many of the young people here have these vibrant social communities that they interact with in real time while they're video gaming. The video game, it's more of back in the old days when people used to get together and do Dungeons and Dragons. Yes, although I still have concerns in a world that has lost the public square, our kids here can't and just don't walk from their house to a gathering place. There's so many great things that you say in this book. One of them is adolescents who've never developed beyond the level of obedience will seek another strong-willed adult to obey. Most people that are in our field know that. And to be fair, it's per perhaps not always related to that. There are other reasons for people to be passive in relationship. But I think it's a major contributor to a kind of passive adulthood. I've definitely seen adults uh, in marriage counseling, for example, who really have not progressed past the level that their parents basically taught them to. So when you ask questions like, I hear that that's how your partner sees that, but how do you see it? They can really only answer in a teenage oppositional way. Like, well, I think that's dumb. It's essential for development that parents really have the courage to take time and ask their teenager, well, you already know what I think about all this, even on scary things, whether it comes to substance use and so forth. Being able to take the risk of saying, you know how I see this, but I'm curious how you see it, even if you don't think I'm right, which I know you don't think I'm right, but tell me what you think about blank. And really listen. Don't use that as a precursor for your next speech. Parents a lot of times don't realize that in communicating with teenagers, you can allow entire conversations to go by without a lesson, reminder, or speech. Even if what the teenager said is wrong or outrageous, it is okay to simply finish with, huh, I did not know that, and walk away. Because again, this is, uh, the, the learning window is getting narrower, as parents notice. Teenagers do not take out a notebook to take notes when you start giving them your long-winded explanation of things. So that kind of moral development really is, I think, connected to what we're talking about. Planned emancipation and allowing adulthood is essential to their future relationship. So you just went where I was going to go, to values. You are very clear about control issues and limit setting. The two areas I think parents have the most trouble with, certainly with adolescents, sometimes even with their young kids, 
they're unwilling to take the authority of being a parent and create a safe, contained environment within which the child can do whatever the child needs to do because that's what young developing brains need. Yeah. When they get to be an adolescent, there's 100% limbic development and probably not 100% prefrontal development. You're right. And that doesn't mean that teenagers are incapable of taking in and applying and making a set of values their own. Maybe you could talk a little bit about control issues plus limit setting, how parents do this in the context of a specific set of values that a family might be holding. That's a great question. As a matter of fact, I'm also pretty excited about the neuroscience developments that are happening. I'm also cautious about a lot of the implications that we drive from this early research because too often the assumption comes out that this new awareness of prefrontal development means that we need to be more infantilizing and more controlling of our teenager. So I think we have to be careful. I talked to too many parents that have never even considered that your teenager has gone beyond the stage of simply learning your family's values. I work a lot with Christian families and a fair number of Jewish families, and it's important to them to try to translate their faith. And if the method in which you share your values have not progressed beyond a childish obedience and learning and rote, then many, many parents are very disappointed. They're discouraged that not been able to accomplish that while at the same time, frankly, getting more and more fearful, hanging on, becoming more dogmatic, uh, not allowing the freedom, which is the reverse of what needs to happen. Regardless of the development level, the truth is that young adults, once they reach a formal operational thought where they really can think in what ifs and see things for themselves, it's actually uh, probably a good experience for a teenager to make what in a particular value system, teenagers tend to go toward a generally liberal perspective, whether it's the political arena or the religious arena. Parents don't need to freak out about that. That's part of their exploring and uh, gaining their own perspective on things. But a lot of the Christian parents, I have to tell them to be clear about asking, what did you think of all this stuff? It's really sad to have a 16 or 17-year-old teenager who will tell me, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't believe all that stuff. I said, oh, your parents didn't tell me that. Oh, don't tell my parents. They would be mad. Well, what a waste. It's much, much better that they know where the teenager is. So those value systems you know, have to be part of the freedom that you develop to gain that communication to really be able to share adult to adult or the value system will depart. And there's a lot of parents who are discouraged that the teenager left their home and did not follow really important values to them. In my experiences, these teenagers don't leave home and rebel against their parents' religion and whatever. It's kind of irrelevant. They never owned it, never took it on themselves. And and one of my favorites is to remind pretty devout Christian parents, when are you going to tell your kid they don't have to get up and go to church? Oh, I can't imagine ever doing that. Well, what do you think is going to happen when she's off at college? Going to be getting up, going to mass, is she? Not, not thinking so. It's a matter of being effective in translating what are the most important things in life to parents and trying to get across. You know, I find teenagers, especially when I work with them therapeutically, they tend to be quite fearless. So you suggest something to them and they actually go do it. Yeah. So I'm wondering what happens when you suggest to a teenager, well, maybe it would be okay to tell your parents how you feel about their religion or this set of rules and values. What happens? It depends on the development of the teenager. And I like those that do, in fact, press it 
to be honest, the first thing that happens is most of the time it comes out a lot stronger and more uh, emotionally intense than we had rehearsed in the session. But what often happens is not as difficult as the teenager thought, that the parent is not as freaked out. That's certainly true of sexuality. I think it comes up a lot that a, a very frightened gay teenager, for example, uh, the parent's reaction is often not as bad. That's not talked about very much, which I wish it were. It can also go very well. Parents gain respect for the teenager. If you're going to be treated like an adult, you really need to show them and act like an adult. So you have these wonderful worksheets to help parents set boundaries and freedoms and expectations that go along with, if I allow you to have this freedom, then here's the bounded quality within which you can have it. And then here are the expectations that go along with that. If for some reason it doesn't go so well, there's actually some consequences. I find parents have a lot of trouble with either all four of these areas, freedom, boundaries, expectations, and consequences, or one or more of them. Talk a little bit about your methodology. The worksheets are right there. Well, that's a product of doing this for 25, 30 years. You've walked through with so many parents that have trouble with one or more uh, of those areas. As a matter of fact, it's funny that you knew that those are four because they try to mash it into three. So a freedom comes with boundaries, not consequences. A boundary says that your freedom is yours, but this is where it doesn't, shouldn't spill into our life. We shouldn't pay for your freedom. If you happen to like music that we find offensive, I'm not going to play that music in my car. That's a boundary. A consequence, which sometimes surprises parents, needs to be clear and cost the teenager something. For example, you have the freedom that I won't be nagging you and hounding you about your homework and your tests and so forth because it's not working. But at the same time, if you do not maintain this, this baseline GPA, then you will lose progressively your privilege on electronics, even going out until you bring your grades up. You really need to kind of walk through and think in advance. Uh, one of the things I'm commonly going over with the parents is, okay, so in return for zero nagging, no reminders, what is the minimum we're requiring? Because you can't get maximum performance from external rewards. The worksheets come out of doing this a long time and bumping into so many questions. I don't think I've heard a, qu a unique question in five years. So it makes it easier to kind of put them down so that you have a list of freedoms. What are the things that you're going to say they no longer answer to you about in progressive order so that it starts with things with lesser consequences to it? Uh, nobody dies from a dirty room. Although the freedom to keep your room as clean or dirty as you see fit just creates all kinds of panic in parents. I've had parents bring me photographs of rooms that are messy thing. Seriously, you want me to leave this to my teenager? But of course, with that freedom comes the boundaries of, well, you do your own laundry. Uh, I'm not going to be in there getting your stuff. And you certainly can have food in there, but it's going to cost you because that brings bugs to my house unless you can afford an exterminator. And then at the same time, they'll need to take the limits where they're going outside of what they need to do. And there's a list of basically the things that your teenager likes to use and have, uh, whether it's a phone, electronics, going out. These are all things that belong to the parents. Parents are always stunned to be reminded that uh, you own everything your teenager has. I had a kid yesterday. It's my favorite conversation. I said, you grabbed the computer from your mom. If you keep doing that, she's going to give away your computer. And he goes, oh, no, she can't do that. It's mine. He's 16. I said, let me ask you this. If your mom and dad sold that computer, who are you going to call? 
Is, is that like, you're going to call the cops? What are you going to do? You can't do anything. It's theirs. He has no answer to that. He's playing poker with no cards in his hand. His parents have that power. And I think where appropriate, they need to use that. You take away the things that you're providing for them for a reasonable time to let them know that this part is a real expectation and a consequence for it. You come in way late from a curfew, that's a big deal. And you will have a payment for that. I am sure all the therapists who work with adolescents listening are shaking their heads. (laughs) I think so. I hope so, because especially when it comes to the consequence part, we don't like talking about how to make a teenager's life uh, hard, but a reasonable consequences you can back up. Because if you don't, there's the natural consequences. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to get real mad and I'm going to start screaming and saying stuff that I wish I hadn't said. And it's much better to simply have uh, stated in advance, (laughs) worked out on a worksheet that you can really say, remember the thing that I said, if you didn't do this, I'm going to do this. Well, I'm going to do this and just do it. That's very few words. Teenagers prefer it. Many teenagers say, oh, if I get another speech, they would rather just have the consequence. It's a loving thing to do is to be clear about what you expect and clear about how I'm going to make your life pretty difficult for a while if you fail to follow these expectations. One thing that is quite prevalent is a form of parenting in which the parents see themselves as the child's best friend. That's here too. There's a good part about that. For a lot of parents, we've sought to be closer to our children than our parents were to us. Uh, We don't want them to fear us, which I think has some merit. The real difficulty comes in that respect is closely associated with fear, and we don't want to see ourselves as someone that in any manner needs to be intimidating to a teenager, and yet we turn around and are surprised that they simply do not do what we tell them to do. I think it's closer to being an employer than a best friend. You can really talk openly and be vulnerable, especially if you're doing the freedoms thing. But at the same time, there are going to be some times that you have to pull out a consequence that will definitely announce we're not best friends. I'll tell you what that's really hard as a parent who's not getting her or his emotional needs met in their own personal life. And that's where it becomes more than just a matter of intellectual agreement that I should pull these consequences. It's, it's a heart issue of I just can hardly stomach my teenager not liking me for a few hours or days. Uh, and you have to be able to do that. Be fearless. There's nothing panicky about a teenager that genuinely doesn't like you for a little while. The two main areas where that might come up that we haven't talked about, substance use, pornography. Yes. Now, substance use is a good example. Once in a while, someone will ask me, so I should, now that they're older, leave them alone about drug use and uh, let them make their own decision about that, to which my answer is an, an absolute no. That is not the same thing. Here in Texas, marijuana is not legal. My favorite is that our teenagers will definitely come up with the argument that, hey, it's legal in many states. And my favorite thing to remind them is that marijuana is not legal for anyone your age in any state. Drug use and alcohol use is definitely something that, in my experience, parents have to draw a pretty hard line on, while at the same time recognizing and being open about their limits on what they can actually control. Parents of teenagers are not policemen. They are a judge. But there needs to be what parents are prepared to do, pretty significant intervention if there's signs of drug use and certainly continued drug use. And I do find that strong sounding parents are amazingly anemic when it comes to uh, what do I do with evidence of drug and alcohol use. I think you have to give a very clear message that's essentially the same message as the law. You cannot use these things, cannot be there where any minors are using these things. And if that ruins your teenager's social life, then your teenager is already in trouble. 
it is really difficult to be a teenager who regularly goes to a social event that the whole thing is about substance use, but I'm not going to do that. So parents have to be pretty firm about that. That is not a freedom that you earn. It's a limit that you set. What I hear a lot is, well, I'd rather have my child doing it in my house. Yes, which makes your house the first stop on a pub crawl for the evening. You drank at home with your dad, right? Yeah, that was at uh, 10. But then by two, of course, I wasn't there. It's actually legally foolish, too. If you give alcohol to minor and they go behind the wheel of a car, you are actually legally responsible for anything that might happen. Here, just not that many years ago, a couple was arrested for contributing to the delinquency of minors. They took a bunch of prom kids to their ranch, handed each couple apparently a tent and a 12-pack and let them go off on their own. And it surprises me that some parents don't see how obvious that is, even parents that are actually overly rigid in other things. Pornography is a very interesting topic. I think it's gone beyond this is a terrible thing. It's so prevalent now. I'm not sure if you're experiencing this where you live. Here, there is a way of viewing sexuality that is becoming extremely warped by the daily use of pornography. I see this in my adult patients. I can't tell you how many couples, one of the partners in the couple has been addicted to porn for quite some time and it's undermined their capacity in so many ways, not just physically, but also emotionally to be able to have any kind of sexual contact with the partner. But for young people, what's happening is there's kind of establishment about this is what sex is actually like. And for the most part, porn is not really a good representation <laughs> of what sexuality is actually like. Oh my, yes. That's all the more reason with pornography. And you're right, it is more complicated because it is very hard to control, but parents certainly need to do what they can to control that and being very open about it. With teenagers, filtering is not a great option because teenagers resent having to get a passcode to do my report on breast cancer. But instead, monitoring, I think, is perfectly reasonable to the degree that you can. And the intervention, by the way, you have to be pretty careful about. Pornography is, for a lot of teenagers, also still accompanied by a fair amount of shame. I tend to think that the degrading nature of a lot of pornography is hopefully naturally repulsive to kids, at least at first, until they get acclimated to it, which happens very quickly. You have to be careful in the reaction to it needs to be one of education, real communication, really coming alongside and really accepting this is kind of a virus that is going through our whole culture. How are you as a young adult more and more going to be able to make your own decisions about and control this? Simply keeping them from pornography, which is very difficult, that's not a good enough goal. You really, as a parent, have to come alongside them and help them to make their own decisions about how they will control this for themselves. But it also means a parent has to navigate what, for many of them, is either embarrassing or difficult, this territory of, here's what sex actually is. Yes. Parents have to practice talking about it. So you really have to examine yourself first. How's your own intimacy going? It's hard to fake with teenagers. I am also greatly concerned about pornography as sex education. By far, it is the most common way that teenagers think they are learning about sexual intimacy. I don't know of any pornography that is not degrading and does not promote intimacy. I've had more and more, especially young women, that are getting a signal that I guess these are things that I should want to do have and participate, to do. have to do. It's just heartbreaking. I agree.
maybe that's one of those areas in which you can't necessarily do consequence, right? At least not at first. You really do have to be careful. That's right. But you really can do expectations, values, inculcating a sense of respect. I actually did an intake with a teenager who's going to college in a week and had some physical issues associated with anxiety and had been in therapy for a long time, but that therapist moved away. This was a really put together 18-year-old who didn't need therapy. The main problem with this child is that they had no sense of self. They were so taken over by the parents, the parents' wants, needs, expectations, that the child's life was so completely enmeshed in the parents' lives. At one point, this child actually said to me, you know, the thing that scares me the most about college is I won't have access to my parents whenever I need advice. (laughs) I'm comparing that to my thoughts about, oh, goody. I won't have access to my parents when I'm off at college. So instead of doing this, which I thought might be shaming, I said, are you actually telling me you have no awareness of your own wisdom? That's a great point. What did he say? Pretty much stopped him. And I said, individuation is your job now. I guarantee you, you probably know all the right answers already. If there's going to be a next book in a few years, I'm going to have to address What about a culture that's gone so far that now there's more and more teenagers, they're not even aware of the individuation drive? Somewhere in your adolescent is a part of their soul saying, hey, when will I have my own life? What happens when you're so distracted, so kept busy, so long that you actually lose track of that need? I see more and more teenagers just like that young man. What happens if if teenagers actually lose track of that there is such a thing as an independent adulthood? For me, this really is an outcome of a loss of introspection and a comfort with just being with oneself without some kind of external stimulus occurring all the time. Maybe you'll agree with me. I really do think you should write this book, Ken. (laughs) (laughs) If you feel like writing another book, I think you should. (laughs) Part of what I see is parents have inculcated a level of fearfulness into young people, fearfulness about life that it's not part of life. Those are good parents that do that. They're involved. They do it right. They uh, have provided. It's really hard to be the, the bringer of bad news that there's a huge thing that you have never really provided for this young person. Yeah. Uh, or as I say in the book, there's a way of being loving and nurturing that is very disrespectful. Parents can be very caring and loving, but it never occurs to them that that is patronizing and disrespectful for you to continually imply in your fear that you can't do this without me. You have to have me there. Well said. I want to give you a chance to kind of talk about anything that's really up for you. That last thing we talked about is definitely one of the things that is often on my mind. This failure to launch that is almost epidemic in young people. If feeding the mouth of bites you provides a map to get from here to there, from childhood to adulthood, it's more and more like what happens when people come in and the map is upside down and it's blank and they don't even realize there is a journey to be going on, there is a goal, there's an end point. And I, I think about that a lot. Relationships are the same way. Teenagers have almost no sense of what they expect a family to look like for themselves, what 
uh, how they will involve themselves in other adults' lives, whether it's marriage or what kind of partnership they're going to connect to. They don't think about that. And technology is on my mind a lot. I'm a very gadget guy. I went from a smartphone to a flip phone because I'm a gadget guy. It got ridiculous. The smaller and cooler the device, the worse it is. Because, you know, you just can't help looking at it. You just look down at your little watch. You look down at your cool retina display. You just can't help yourself. Some people can, and that's great. I, I couldn't. But I can tell you, it's really easy not to look down at my little AT&T flip phone because there's nothing to see. Uh, <laughs> texting, do you remember T9 language where you push on the little phone buttons to text? It's annoying. It forces me to do things like call you back instead of texting you back, you know, because it's just not worth it for me to go through a lengthy text. It's been good for me. I don't think everyone needs that. And ironically, most people assume it's because I'm not tech, but it's the other way around. I'm all tech. I could be all the time. I just love that stuff. And it's not good for me. How do your kids feel about this? Oh, they think it's funny. I talk to a lot of parents about you really might consider making this a household change, that we're all now going to put all our phones in this basket in the kitchen. All of us aren't going to have anything in our room. One dad said, okay, I'll do that. But that doesn't mean that I really don't have my phone in my room, right? I'm like, yeah, no, it's good for you too. They can't imagine not looking at a screen several times an hour. Some of the most technological people here have very strict rules about technology. There's actually quite a movement, not just here, uh, but we have more than enough developmental research on early childhood to show that infants and children up to two years old should never be in front of a screen because the way that a screen is processed by the visual cortex gets in the way of that human being developing certain capacities to perceive, experience the way a human brain is wired to experience. Yes. There's a big movement, no screen time at all before two. And then from two on, very limited. There's a book called Irresistible about the addictive power of, of electronic devices and the business of keeping you hooked. The author gives several examples of Silicon Valley folks where these are the products they make, whether it's Steve Jobs and many others, that had strict limits. And I can tell you, we have not reached that here so I'm a little bit of a voice in the wilderness here, uh, which is fine with me. I have no trouble telling parents as a consequence, when the child comes home from school, the phone is not needed. And teenagers freak out. What else could you take from your teenager that would cause that kind of flip out? This is not normal. And teenagers are so insidiously dependent. And I'm really glad to know that at least awareness is catching on there. It, but I can tell you, it is slow in the middle states where we think this stuff is awesome and cool. Well, we think this stuff is awesome and cool, too. <laughs> I think there's a good awareness of the limitations, like with anything. One of the things that you, I think, are still involved in is ringleaders. Yes. Would you be willing to share a little bit about what that is? Ringleaders uh, has nothing to do with feeding them out the bites you. Right. It's a completely other thing that I do that I think came from working with families and certainly the obvious connection of parenting skills to the strength of marriage. I work with a lot of couples and I'm a guy. So when it comes to recognizing the need for strengthening husbands in knowing how to handle marriage, 
it's huge. Men don't want to come to marriage counseling. They'll come because, you know, she said so. And, and that always makes a wife feel like he doesn't care. And I have to explain to her that, no, no, he cares. He just doesn't think he needs to go to some expert to do this because it feels a little bit humiliating. But that's just the way that men often frame relationships. Ringleaders was actually the product of a friend of mine at my church. I was doing a marriage conference and I said, I would love if there could ever be such a thing, which I don't think there could be, is just a group of husbands talking about Christian marriage and how to understand our wives and fulfill our role as husbands. And I said, but I just don't think that could ever happen. My friend, Jeff Ron, called me a year later. We had lunch. He said, I want to do that thing you talked about. I think we can do that. Fortunately, he was right and I was wrong. We have a lot of men and we've done it at a couple of other churches as well. The best part is to watch men sitting at a table having discussion together about marriage because, you know, women will often talk about their relationships. Men do not sit at lunch with other men and say, how's your marriage? It's just not a common thing. There's a curriculum that is uh, definitely very practical. I'm a huge fan of Deborah Tannen. My current favorite book, by the way, is How to Improve Your Marriage Without Talking About It. Have you seen that book? I have. The insights were Fantastic. amazing. So uh, we use a fair amount of that combined with Theology of the Body, which came from Pope Francis. And we're, I'm not Catholic, but I'm Anglican, so it's close. That combination of trying to be very practical, but also recognize how this fits spiritually in our lives. And just the fact that it's been going for eight years is very encouraging. So if, if there is a next book, it would actually be that. The other goal, of course, is to strengthen marriage so that you can be strong in parenting children. Because as you know, when you don't have that, you just cut your power in half and it makes it very difficult. Because any therapist that works with teenagers knows full well that if the marriage is weak or dying, then they're cutting each other off at the knees. They're not, it's been great fun. One of the most popular AA meetings here takes place at a local church, and it's men only. And I have heard from men who go to this meeting, the reason why they love it, it's the most honest, holding, real place. They can go to be themselves and be with other guys who are being themselves. Patriarchy has been almost worse for men than women, in <laughs> fact, because men can't have their emotions. They can't be vulnerable. So many things they're not allowed to do. Well, yeah. Let's say it's been bad for both. Oh, it's been horrible for women. We all know that. And certainly relationship-wise, men are much more fragile. At the end of Ringleaders, the curriculum is eight weeks. The men serve their wives lunch, and we kind of debrief the wives. And the question always comes up, do you have a wife version of this? And the answer is, well, no. Someone might want to do that, but it wouldn't be us. And secondly whether it's good or bad or whatever, you bring a wife into the room and it changes a man's ability to just talk. I don't know that it's exactly the same way with women. I think it changes some, but not as much as men. We once talked about it. I remember we, we do uh, alumni meetings at pubs. We're all sitting around there with our beer. And I'm, I said, uh, we've been approached by a minister's wife. She wants to come and maybe sit at a back table and she and a couple of other women and just monitor and learn what we're doing. And man, it was like saying we want to bring a bomb in the room. It was hilarious because it was very upsetting to think about changing the chemistry of the room with just men. I think we're going to close. So some of the things that we've discussed today have a lot to do with the way our culture is going. 
So I thought I would give you an opportunity, no holds barred, <laughs> which maybe you've never had from any other interview. Say a little bit about how you're doing with the insanity that our nation seems to be in the grip of. You definitely ask good questions. I would have to title it the pandemic of isolation. Being a psychologist, we sit in therapy a little bit like a physician so that you're dealing with each individual thing that comes into your office. Yet I notice that my patients more and more are coming in with the same anemia or the same lesions, if you will, that they don't even notice. I am probably by far most concerned with a swing that went from early 20th century that our field brought about, which is an increased scientific insight. We have taught ourselves to label our inner experience with things like, I am an introvert. So many people can tell me their uh, Myers-Briggs profile, your love language. And I worry that there is an increasing poverty of recognition of how to be with each other, how we rely on each other in relationship. So that relationship really becomes more and more like this is my TV show and everyone around me are supporting cast members that may change by season three. We're becoming increasingly narcissistic. I have great concern that we don't have a dialogue and a way of being together as a community, as a family. Uh, and definitely in love together. It allows for, I think, the larger things that happen. How does certain candidates suck up a wide range of voters that really have nothing to do with each other, and yet, uh, because there's not a we out there as a bunch of eyes. I gotta tell you, that's the most common thing that I see, and I think there's an important role in our field to continue to help people to understand their inner experience, no question but to try to help guide people in how to be with others in an impoverished interpersonal environment, I guess. Well, you and I are absolutely on the same page. I could have said the same thing. It's just to tie everything together because we have gone through a wide territory here. Yes, we have. This increasing isolation and narcissism, which research shows leads to increased aggression. Right. We because I think we're both thoughtful clinicians. I hope so. Yeah. It behooves us to name our discipline, our profession as part of the problem. I totally agree with that. Because the way psychology has been practiced for the last 150 years really lends itself to a narcissistic, individualistic, isolationist way of viewing healing. And we are a tribal species and our well-being and health requires that we drop into the very things that are all the same about all of us. Well said. We've been talking about raising responsible, caring adults. That would be a part of a community that would contribute. Yes. Exactly. And that means that the adults that are raising them have to find a way back into what you're talking about, which is connection. Yes. With something greater than themselves. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for your work. This has been great. If we don't share the need for the, or this kind of teaching, then we're not doing it right. And I, I was very encouraged to know that you find it helpful as well. Well, thank you so much for being on the Groundless Ground podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's show. The Groundless Ground podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. To find out more about this episode, see a list of upcoming guests, or get in touch, visit groundlessground.com. 
Now let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.